Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for the provisions you've made necessary, uh, this church, this pulpit, um, this country that provides a blanket of freedom so that we can do this thing that, frankly, uh, others in the world can't do, uh, which is to worship you openly and uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, what a privilege this is, Father. Thank you for giving us the word to keep us on the straight and narrow. Thank you for the convicting ministry of your spirit as we uh, walk this way. We know that our own flesh is at odds with it. And we just thank you for his influence uh, in our lives. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt and make this evening even a reality. May we never lose sight of something so simple as the gospel, something so powerful. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> um, like I said uh, earlier, I was expecting to continue with part 24 of you know, the difficult passages, Grace and Works, but the Spirit had... Uh, other plans, obviously, as you'll see this evening. Again, this is part three. Remember, don't forget the grace the Lord your God has shown you. Um, before we dig in, though, I uh, want to read a, a, a letter from a humble man in Kenya who had recently asked my permission to reproduce some of uh, our written materials. It says this, uh, Dear Pastor Ed Collins, I'm very much overwhelmed with a lot of excitement and joy for personally giving me your permission to print your gospel messages, materials, and thereafter distribute to people over here free of charge. Through the grace of God, you got to remember, guys, not we're in the vast minority. Most ministries have books and such charge, which is, in my opinion, shameful, but whatever. Um, so because there's no charge on our materials, guess what he can do in Kenya? For a very small amount, he can uh, distribute these books that uh, have been written free of charge. Through the grace of God Almighty today, I had managed to present uh, religion by any other name to the vendor who is currently helping me with both printing and binding of 550 copies. I thank God Almighty that He has fully provided financial resources for these copies, these numbers, uh, copy numbers above. And just so you know, He didn't ask us for a cent. Uh, he just asked for permission to print these things so He could go fulfill His own mission down there in Kenya. When both printing and binding will be done, I, through the grace of God, will be on the streets of Nairobi City, distributing the well-done finished copies to people free of charge. I do believe to those who will have access to them, they will be equally blessed in Jesus' name. Always remember me in prayers for this work here in Kenya so that God's will alone to be done. Shalom, Brother Dinesh. Isn't that nice? We have, you know, you got to remember that stuff. We're just a little church, but what do we get, Monica? Probably three to five a day. Requests, I can't always answer them, but when they're not specifically, if they're only asking for permission for something, it's easy. Go for it. Go for it. 
and this is encouraging, and hopefully it's encouraging to you as well. Um, and on that note, it makes me think about the ministry and the outreach and the other ministries. As I've been trying to impress upon you all, any and all ministries, whether like this one or missionary-like, uh, as the, like the planned trip in India, what have you, or the ones on Saturday, these are our ministries. I need you to think that way. These are our missions. They're yours. They're mine. They're everyone's. Um, you have to understand that that's the unity the Spirit's trying to convey. He's saying, well, you got the gospel reloaded. Uh, you've got the great commission upon your hearts. Uh, I'm going to start sending people out, uh, even using some of the output from the pulpit and from the vessel uh, in Kenya. And we're all involved in it, frankly. We're all involved in it. Uh, maintaining a website costs money, that kind of a thing. Uh, it's effort, it's labor, uh, all those kinds of things. Editing, you know, I'm not the only person, so you have to think of this as our ministry. With that said, just changing gears a little bit, as a shepherd, um, I have the, you know, quote, privilege of whacking false teachers over the head with the rod of the word as it is part of my duty to protect the flock. Um, what our enemies are fully intent on doing is fracturing such unity in the faith, sowing discord even among the churches. So I'd like to share a post I put out on social media recently um, just because I get fed up every once in a while. And God, the Holy Spirit says, just put this out there so that those that are actually in honestly seeking will find truth. So here's what I wrote. <clears throat> if I have a blueberry pie and seven guests, I will rightly divide the pie into eight pieces <clears throat> and all will be well with my guests and the Lord who graced us out with the blessing in the first place. Now, what if I cut the pie into 16, 32, 64, or even 128 pieces? Well, my friends, I'd have a big mess on my hands. My guests wouldn't be able to even distinguish their dessert as blueberry pie anymore. And my Lord might chastise me for being a moron. The moral of the story, a wise person knows what, quote, rightly divide actually means. It doesn't always mean the more the better. In fact, we can turn a blessing into an abomination right quickly if we aren't careful. There are a lot of morons out there that seem to think that, quote, rightly dividing the Word of God means finding new and more complicated ways of carving up Scripture. Unfortunately, they have ruined the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ and even the joy and childlike faith that Jesus himself spoke of. 2 Timothy 2.15 reads, But be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling its orthotomeo, also translated rightly divide, the word of truth. What a beautiful verse, but sadly, the Spirit desires I convey this word of caution. My friends, beware of Christian sophomores, the wise morons. The irony is that while they suppose they are, quote, rightly dividing the word, they are, in fact, working to unrightly divide the body of Christ. Beware of those who claim some higher understanding of Scripture because their theology is hyper-categorized, 
and difficult for even a layperson to follow. Do not associate their folly with Jesus Christ, for they do not represent him in their efforts. They are actually closer to the Pharisees than to Jesus, seeking self-elevation. They are often asserting themselves publicly and frequently, and the demons are chuckling. If the good Lord gives you blueberry pie, enjoy it the way it is meant to be enjoyed. Don't let anyone else hack it into obscene pieces that are no longer distinguishable as blueberry pie. Love to you all. Signed, me. Now, I share that because our enemies are trying every possible trick to divide us. Every poss- I'm seeing it all, folks. Um, every trick is coming out of the bag nowadays. As Jesus said, <clears throat> Luke eleven seventeen part B, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. Satan knows this. The demons know this. They're trying to divide us. They're trying to use any little fracture uh, in the body of Christ to drive stakes in between the individual members. And it's grotesque. And if you think about um, who did Jesus despise the most? Who did he call a brood of vipers? The Pharisees. It was the the snobs. It was the self-righteous people. The guy was hanging around with what? Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and what have you. And he was fine with it. He may not have agreed with it, but he wasn't um, quite as uh, strong-armed about those people as he was the arrogant people. He despised that kind of arrogance that uses something beautiful like the Word of God, perverts it, and then uses it to, to divide, despise it. And I guess he's given me his heart in part as a shepherd, and I hate it. I absolutely feel like throttling people when I see it. It's disgusting to me because all you're doing is hurting people. This world doesn't need Christian police. Anyway. This past week, the Spirit had Scott highlight some very important concepts for us, and they are uh, certainly worth reviewing here this evening before we close out our primary course of study with Grace and Works, Part 24. As has been the case for a very long time now, really what the Spirit's been saying to us is simple up here on the board. He's just trying to get us to change our perspective. If you haven't figured that out yet, you haven't been paying attention. It's just a change of perspective. Um, We often need to step back, take a deep breath, see the big picture, and receive a change of perspective from the Spirit. That's all he's saying. He's like, step back for a moment. Just where's your head at? Take a deep breath. See the big picture. Uh, Take a walk. I mean, even Jesus, you know, went away from the crowds uh, every so often to be alone with God. That's what prayer is all about. Be alone. Find time with God. Read the Word of God alone. Pray alone. And that's what he's saying, because that's where you'll find your perspective. For examples, again, our lessons from the pulpit have been titled this, Remember, don't forget the grace the Lord your God has shown you. Why? And this is the question we're going to develop this evening. Why? Why 
this emphasis on remembering all of a sudden? Well, there are several reasons that the Spirit has brought up over the course of the past week. I could say over the past year, frankly. Several reasons why this emphasis on remembering grace. For starters, up here on the board, you know, why should I remember or why should we remember? Think of it this way. The more we remember, the more we love. The more we remember, the more we love. The more we love, the greater we become like God. We love because He first loved us. 1 John 4.19 The one who is forgiven much. Remember, don't forget where you came from. The one who is forgiven much loves much. Luke 7.39.47 Go there. Go to Luke 7.39. Again, the more we remember, the more we love. The more we love, the greater we become like God. We love because He first loved us. The one who is forgiven much, remember how much you've been forgiven. Remember that the next time you sin, if you haven't already sinned since you've been sitting there. <laughs> Why is everybody laughing? That person loves much. So don't forget how much you've been forgiven. We're all really wretched, let's face it. Every day we do foolish, self-centered, self-absorbed, egocentric, awful things. And God sees it all. So we should not necessarily be condemned by those things, but we should remember that at the cross that sin was paid for. Luke 7.39, Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would not know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. That's so grotesque. I feel like throttling him. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Again, the question on the table, why all this emphasis on remembering? Do you think the woman in view remembered? Do you think the person who was forgiven 500 denarii remembered? That's the point that Jesus was making. The more we remember, and frankly, it's not 500 denarii, it's infinite because we've been given eternal life even though we deserve nothing. The more we remember that, the more we love, the more grateful we are for His grace. So again, the point on the board, why should we remember? The more we remember, the more we love. The more we love, the greater we become like God. We love because He first loved us. The one who is forgiven much, the one that remembers even, loves much. Here's what I heard also during this past week's lessons on why should we remember up here on the board. We are saved daily. I taught several lessons on that at the beginning of our last big series there. We are saved daily. 
Salvation is something that happens all the time. Salvation means deliverance. Let us not forget the big save, the fact that you're a believer, I'm assuming, or any of the little ones. Also, I heard, avoid the trap of forgetting the kindness and mercy of God. Think of Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the unworthy. And perspective is everything. And that one's certainly not novel to this past week. So do not be like Miss Jackson. What have you done for me lately? Isn't that what most people are like? Fair statement? I know you saved me, but... I know, I know, I know, but what have you done for me lately? Seems like you're doing Johnny over here more than you're doing for me. I mean, all joking aside, we ought to be more like Paul, who was a murderer. Go to 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. You know, you want to play that game in your personal life? I don't advise it, but whatever. But don't play that game with God. You have no idea. I have no idea all the things that He's done for me or you. No idea. 1 Timothy 1.15 It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Do you see that? Did Paul have a memory? among whom I am foremost of all. Paul never forgot where he came from. That's why he was so humble. That's why he loved the way he loved. That's why he was driven the way he was driven. That's why he was motivated the way he was motivated. Why? Because he never forgot where he came from, like we do sometimes. Yet for this reason I found mercy. And the reason was what? So that in me as the foremost, and again, others ought to remember this also, Think of Paul's audience. Many of them knew he was a murderer. So remembrance goes across, uh, divides even. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, even those on the side of Paul, it was good for them to remember where he came from. He would remind them where he came from. It's in Scripture. Why? So that he says, look, at this is where I was, and this is where I am now. This is amazing. Let us not forget how far he's raised me or you. And if we forget, well, this is what the Spirit's been warning us of. We lose sight of the things we ought to be grateful for. Underneath the lessons this past week was lurking another noteworthy point of view, and this one's a little diff more difficult uh, to convey, so um, let me see if I can direct your attention to it. Just concentrate for me. It's going to take a little bit of development, but it'll make sense in the end. Again, remember, we are addressing this question, why all this emphasis on remembering? That's the question. Why? Why these lessons on remembering? I mean, isn't it obvious? Yeah, but then why don't we do it? And what's the value of it? Well, sometimes we have to be reminded. First, let me give you some food for thought. And again, I'm going to develop this concept here in a moment. I got this from Forbes.com. I've known this for a very long time. 
through practical experience, through learning. Multitasking tasking isn't what you think. You're really just switching back and forth between tasks really quickly, according to Guy Winch, PhD, author of Emotional First Aid. Multitasking isn't what you think. You're really just switching back and forth between tasks really quickly. I was thinking the, the company that I used to work for um, once was once described or was often described by incomers into the company as working in dog years. One year at that place was like working seven years anywhere else. It was, it was crazy. We were a group of so-called multitaskers. Um, in fact, the entire culture could have been described that way. But here's what I learned after a decade with the company. I agree with Dr. Winch. There is no such thing as multitasking. There just isn't. And um, I'm not saying I'm the smartest guy, but I'm certainly not the dumbest. But I can tell you this, I was around some of the smartest people on the planet for a very long time. And if they were up here, they'd tell you the same thing. There is no such thing as multitasking. We like to say that because we like to puff ourselves up, but there isn't. It's impossible to multitask effectively. In fact, there's really no such thing. The human brain is a lot like a computer in this sense. A computer chip, though it appears to be doing several things simultaneously, really isn't. It's doing things serially, just really fast. You might say, wow, look at that on my computer screen. You know, there's a video playing and you've got your mouse moving and you're doing it. It don't happen simultaneously. There's a chip in there that every instruction is going. Remember, I'm a computer engineer, so I can say this. There's a chip that every instruction is going through serially, one after the other. It might be a really long row of ones and zeros at once, but they all go through serially, just like this, just really fast. So it appears that it's multitasking. So we just call it multitasking. But the reality is, it's not. There's no such thing. It's serial. Now, if we agree with Dr. Winch for a moment, this means that it's impossible for us to have our eyes simultaneously on Christ. In other words, be filled. Remember, um, what was it, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, being filled in the word of Christ were the same thing. It's impossible for us to have our eyes simultaneously on Christ a.k.a. be filled with the Spirit, and on something ungodly. I'm talking about in the moment. Let's take this one step further. If for some period of time, don't make doctrines out of this. Don't go, you guys, is this like filling? No, don't do that. I'm making a point. If for some period of time our attention is diverted to something ungodly, doesn't it stand to reason that in that moment, I mean, in that split second, in that moment, since your attention can only be in one place at a time, that we have forgotten about Jesus? Yeah. In that moment, in that however brief it may be, your eyes are on something ungodly. And they can't be on ungodliness and Jesus at the same time. Remember remembrance. 
fair to say that we've forgotten about Jesus. Now note, again, I stress this with everything I've got. After all the work I've done with this group specifically, don't make a doctrine out of this. Don't. I'm making a point, so leave it there. Taking this one final step in an effort to address the question why all this emphasis on remembering, is it fair to say that it's easier to discern something's wrong when that thing is present and it shouldn't be? Or when something is not present and it should be? Is it easier to discern something's wrong when that thing is present and it shouldn't be? Like, you know, one of these things just doesn't belong. Is it easier to discern that? And think in the spiritual life even. Or when something is not present and it should be. Because forgetting God is an omission issue up here on the board. Omissions, something's absent, are often much harder to realize than commissions, something's present. The only way to discern omission is through diligent self-examination and survey. In other words, if I go like this, hey, Anthony, fungu. Does that mean anything in, it, in Italian? Did I just swear? Ooh, sorry. Oh, self-righteous Italian group over here, right? I didn't mean to swear. Yes, I did, but whatever. If I say that, isn't it obvious? The answer is, whoa, something's in my grill up here. This is a sin. He offended me, right? Or... What if there's something missing that should be there? Which one's harder to see? Which one's harder to identify? Something that's in your face, like an overt sin, or something that's not there that should be there? How do you figure this one out? The only way you figure this out, because this one's obvious, right? It's in your face. The only way you figure this one out is you survey your life. You examine yourself regularly to see what's missing. And that requires diligence. And that reminds me of James. Go to James 1.23. Forgetting God is an omission issue. Omissions are often much harder to realize than commissions. The only way to discern omission is through self, uh, diligent self-examination and survey. James 1.23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. What was James conveying there? Don't forget. If you look in the mirror and you examine yourself, don't forget. Again, omissions are often much harder to realize than commissions. The only way to discern omission is through diligent self-examination and survey. Now let's make this practical and very personal now. Let's examine ourselves for commissions, or omissions, excuse me. Vacuum. The absence of something where something should be. Do you have any vacuums in your life? <clears throat> because you've forgotten about the word? about Jesus Christ, your first love, as Revelation 2, 4 to 5 speaks to? And what fills these vacuums? Be honest. What fills these vacuums? If God says, hey, here's some grace for you, and you say, no, thank you, well, there's a vacuum there in your life. 
supposed to read your Bible. I don't feel like it. Well, that leaves what? A vacuum in space that was supposed to be filled by God's grace in a specific way. Well, what if you're constantly being diverted? You forget about Christ and you're constantly diverted to something ungodly. Well, we just learned that you can't have your eyes on two things at the same time. There's no such thing as multitasking. Oh, I got Jesus. He's good. I'm over here, though. No. If you move away from here, there's now there's a vacuum. What's filling the vacuum in your life? And you have to be honest. Go to Revelation 2.4. Revelation 2.4. That's all a vacuum is. If you ask a scientist, it's the... You know, most of them would say, oh, we suck all the air out. That's a vacuum. That's why as soon as you pop the cover off the lid, air rushes in and you hear, that's because it's filling in what wasn't there. That's how vacuums work. In the spiritual life, it's just as obvious. There's a vacuum. What are you sucking in if it's not truth? It's the, wor- it's the world, basically. Revelation 2.4, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. What a tragedy. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. There's the word in print for you. Remember from where you have fallen and what? Repent. Oh, wait a minute. So these things are related? Yeah, these things are actually related. Remember where you came from, where you have fallen from, and repent. And do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now he's talking to a church, so the principles apply. Now pay special attention to what the church, or excuse me, what the Lord has John write here about what precipitates repentance even. You may not put these things together, but this is the way it is up here on the board. Remembrance induces repentance. Remembering our salvation in every sense, every day, is integral to our daily repentance. The Spirit's ministry is to bring to your remembrance the words of our Lord. That's John 14, 26. Light exposes the deeds of darkness, Ephesians 5, 11, inciting our distaste for sin, hence our motivation to repent from it. Let me read it again. Remembering our salvation in every sense, every day is integral to our daily repentance. The Spirit's ministry is to bring to your remembrance the word of our Lord. Well, that's light. The word is light. The Lord is light. Light exposes the deeds of darkness, inciting our distaste for sin, hence our motivation to repent from it. Go to Ephesians 5.11. Ephesians 5.11, just so you see the Verse through the eye gate. You see, the, the, the Spirit is way in front of you, isn't he? For some of you are saying, geez, I never thought about it this deep. Well, the Spirit does. The Spirit knew on Sunday and on Tuesday that we'd have this lesson on Thursday and that he'd start connecting more and more dots to those that are interested, to those that are honest, to those that are seeking Ephesians 5.11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead, what? Even expose them. Even expose them. 
I mean, if your eyes are not on the light, so to speak, to be totally practical on it, what's going to be exposed? If you're consciously diverted to something ungodly, what's going to be exposed? Therefore, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. The tricky thing about darkness is that you don't realize you're in it until you realize you're not in the light. Oh, what? Wait a minute, what? I know. I know. The tricky thing about darkness is that you don't realize you're in it until you realize you're not in the light. In other words, until you self-examine and you realize there's an omission, there's a vacuum in your life. That's why the Bible says, how great is your darkness when you think you're in the light? Because you don't even realize it. Let me ask you another practical question. Assuming you say grace before every meal, including when you're out in public, up here on the board, when's the last time you said grace at the dinner table and truly meant it? I mean, dear Father, when's the last time you said grace at the dinner table and truly meant it? Where you truly were reflecting on the sustenance set before you by grace? Or do you just do the, you know, the, okay, everybody, join hands. Okay, let's go. That's not gratitude. Honestly, that's not gratitude at all. That's ritual. Deuteronomy 8.10 When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Don't forget that, that meal, your home where you're breaking bread, that's all by grace. Don't just throw some hack prayer up to God without any proper motivation or recognition or remembrance whatsoever. You know, remember that that juicy steak or that nice, you know, uh, uh, beer or whatever the heck you're drinking with it, or, you know, I don't know, flavored water. Those are all grace gifts. Right? How about this? To continue with the gratitude as a result of remembrance... When's the last time you walked into this building and truly said thank you to God? Honestly. When's the last time you walked into this building and said thank you, God? And then finally, on this particular vein of thinking for all of you parents out there, have you forgotten to train up your children to be grateful. Have you forgotten? You see, when you, when you become a parent, God says, I'm going to give you responsibility now. Um, you're now responsible for another living human being. And if you're a believer, I expect you. I expect you to train up this child of yours this blessing I've given you. And it's not optional. I expect it. And I don't want you to forget about your own kids. And I don't want you to forget about training them up. And I don't want them to forget. Because I don't want their children and their children's children to forget. 
This is not what we read in the Bible. Isn't that why we train children up? Have you forgotten to train up your children to be grateful? For example, this Christmas, will your children be more grateful for Jesus or the presents they receive? Seriously. Deuteronomy 4.9 Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen. They do not depart from your heart all the days of your life and make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Make them known. That's a command from God. That's, don't even think about it as a command. How have I taught you about command? Commands are really God's will for you. This is God expressing His will. He's like, this is what I want. Do you understand? I'm God. This is what I want. I want you to raise your children up. I don't want a bunch of brats. I want kids that bring glory to me by and through gratitude. If you're not raising up your children in the faith, that's what we theologically call a sin of omission. You get it? If you're not not raising up your kids in the faith, if you're a believer and you're not raising your children up in the faith, that's what's called a sin of omission. You're not doing something you're supposed to do. And then we wonder why, as Christians, you know, our own country is, in, is a complete train wreck. Proverbs 22.6, Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. All I can say on this front is that this idea that Weak parents seem to cling to, you know, I hate when I hear this, but that's between you and the Lord if you say stuff like this. Well, I'll let my kids decide for themselves when they get older. And I'm talking to believers who say, oh, well, I'll let my kids decide for themselves about God when they get older. Well, frankly, that's a pile of crap. That's horse dung. The Bible is very clear on the simple topic of believing parents raising their children as unto the Lord. So if you are a believer, and for as long as your kids are living under your roof, you ought to be demanding their compliance. Demanding it. For example, and Joey will attest to this, and I hate to bring him up, but and don't think I'm saying anything great about myself. He's just a good proof point of it. Joey will attest to this. As long as Joey lived in my house, and this held true even when he got out of the service and had to live home for a little while while he got himself situated, as long as he lived in my house, I demanded he do as my household does. And that minimally meant go to church. Because that's what we do in my house. That's what we do. Right? Reminds me of Joshua. 2415 Part B. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So if you're in my house, this is what we do. This is what we do in my house. So if you want to live in this house, then this is what you're going to do. You have options. Seriously. You have options. I'm not 
forcing you to be here, but if you're going to live here, especially as an adult when you get out of the service, then you're going to abide by my, by the, my Lord's rules for a house. Now, that may seem offensive to some of you, but my response is twofold. First, too bad. The truth stings. Second, look who's sitting right here in front of me by his own free will and with his lovely wife. Jesus Christ said, you shall know them by their what? Oh, there's some fruit right there sitting in the front row. Again, the last point on this thread of addressing the question, why all this emphasis on remembering up here in the board? Have you forgotten to train up your children to be grateful? For example, this Christmas, will your children be more grateful for Jesus or the presents they received? Just reflect on this for a moment. Those, when you think about people who are basically lazy parents who say, oh, I'm just going to let my kid, you know, figure it out on their own. Inside my house, out my, outside my house, I'm not going to even say or do or impose anything or stress obedience to the word, whatever. I'm going to let them figure it out. Reflect for a moment. Children, even most adults, let's face it, let's face it. Children have the attention span of a gnat, right? If we as good parents aren't constantly demanding their obedience to the rules of the household, then it's very likely their attention will be diverted to other ungodly things. Guess who knew this? God knew this. If we're not constantly demanding their obedience to the rules of this house, as for my house, we serve the Lord. And if you're not saying as a parent, and if you're too wimpy as a man to say, hey, listen, these are the rules of the house, kid. I don't care if you're 25. This is the way my house operates. We live as under the Lord. This is what we do. And if you're not on board with that, then you have options. Kids, and even young adults, even adults, they have the attention span of a gnat. So what does that mean? Well, let's develop this a little further. The Lord feels so strongly about this that he has given we pastors guidelines on the subject. So don't think I'm talking like, you know, some pontificating jackass. Go to 1 Timothy 3.4. I have scripture on my head. Do you? Well, indirectly. How about I have direct scripture on my head? Do you understand? Pastors have a calling that demands adherence to Scripture in a specific way. Look at it. We're not perfect, so don't be scrutinizing me now. I saw Joey outside smoking. I'm being funny. Jeez, guys, relax. Sheesh. First, First Timothy 3.4. He, a pastor's in view must be one who what? Manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Well, I don't, you can try to spiritualize that all you want. 
But there's just no getting around that. That just says that I got to have my house in order. And the only way things stay in order when you have kids is when you demand that they're in order. And if you're going to live in my house, I don't care how, I don't care if you're 50. This is my house. This is how it is. We serve the Lord. You don't like it. Goodbye. How about deacons? Being the pastor's right-hand man. Go to verse 12. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and are good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. That means for someone like DJ, Don doesn't have any kids, but for someone like DJ, he must objectively observe his own household's standing before the Lord. And he must ask himself, do I have a high standing in the eyes of the Lord? Is my household in check? And if the answer comes back negative, for either one of us, pastors or deacons, we must take corrective action immediately. Now, let's get back to the main theme of our lessons on this past week. That answers the question, why all this emphasis on remembering? So we're going to depart from that deep dive. Children was the last sort of bit on the thread. But don't let go of that as we press on. I mean, we had a whole week of lessons on don't forget, remember the grace of the Lord your God. We received a very strong visual from Holy Scripture this past week concerning the following. Let me flip through this real quick. Cheating on God. I was thinking about this. You know, there's an awful lot of analogy in the Bible on adultery. Why? Well, for we church-age believers, why do you think? We're betrothed to the Lord. We are His bride. So when we ignore Him, we're essentially cheating on Him. We're cheating on God. So ask yourself, and this, is the, this helps build the analogy, what does the adulterous courtier, as someone who courts another person, what does the adulterous courtier do to the married person? They say, look at me, look at me, right? Look at me. I know you're with your wife. Look at me. I know you're with your husband. Look at me. What do you mean? And remember what Dr. Winch said. You can't multitask. If that person is able to divert a person's attention, they're no longer looking at their spouse. They're looking at someone else, which is why that person saying, look at me, or whatever, I don't know, whatever girls like now. And since we cannot multitask, if we're focusing on the courtier, we cannot focus on our spouse. 
If you forget the blessing of your spouse, the grace that they represent even, then your fidelity to them is lost. You see how quickly that happened? You can't multitask. Look at me. Oh. Well, you're no longer looking at the one you're supposed to be looking at. You see, this is why it's so very important to remember the grace of God. This is why it's so very important to remember the grace of God. Marriage represents unity, which is God-given grace. And it is used in myriad places as the picture of Christ and His bride, even God and Israel, if you understand the Old Testament. Satan and our enemies would like nothing more than to obliterate the unity in the faith. Obliterate it. Just keep looking at me to heck with Jesus. Keep looking at me. I know you're betrothed to him, but just keep looking at me. And that's what everybody seems to do. I can't multitask, so I guess I'm just going to keep my eyes on, the Lord or on something ungodly over here. Satan and our enemies want nothing more than to obliterate, annihilate, the unity. In this analogous thing, this marriage, if you would, to Jesus Christ, it is as the Spirit's been bringing to our remembrance the angels of light that are the courtiers. Don't believe me? Let me perform a little experiment with you. It's a little memory experiment. And I know, if you're like me, it's almost impossible not to read both bullets, but try not to read both bullets at once, okay? Who said, after clicking their ruby slippers three times, there's no place like home? Wow. Wow. Billy was like, I know. Dorothy. Everybody knows that? Okay. Who said, quote, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Who said that? Don't. I won't look. Peter. Some of you guys, that was probably Paul. He said everything, right? It was either Jesus or Paul, right? Nope. It was Peter. Now, is it fair to say that most believers could answer the first question, but not the second. I'm not suggesting that you're a failure if you don't have the Bible memorized. I certainly don't. But this little experiment stands as an indictment on mankind. His priorities and the things he chooses to remember. We remember Dorothy, but not Peter. But, 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 no, we remember Dorothy, but not Peter? As we begin with this evening, 
leaving our first love implies we already have a relationship with this person, Jesus Christ. And so when we're diverted this way, we are without excuse, frankly, if we forget about God and adulterate on the Lord. We are without excuse. Not like we don't know Him. We do know Him. And what do we do? We choose. We pretend we can multitask, but we can't. We might fool those who are watching just like a computer screen fools you into thinking multiple things are happening at the same time. Nope. Just a really fast, a bunch of things in serial, really fast. But you're not fooling God. So we're out, we're really, frankly, without excuse. That's what he's saying. Remember where you came from? Have you become, you began by the Spirit, but now you're going to perfect yourself in the flesh? As the Spirit taught us on Tuesday, this happens naturally when we forget about our Lord's grace in our lives. That's why I remember Revelation 2.5 said, Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do, excuse me, do the deeds you did at first. And I'll end, I've got just a couple minutes. I'll end on a, a less solemn note. Uh, as many of you know, uh, my immediate family and I go away for Thanksgiving and we, you know, we unplug from all technology. That's something that uh, we hold each other accountable to. We see each other, you know, if the phone even comes out of our pocket or something like that. But, hey, hey! Andrea's first experience. Actually, you did good. This unplugging of technology on vacation, I personally, not that it matters what I think, but I would recommend it to all of you, regardless of the occasion. Unplug. Seriously. Shut the dang thing off. Historically, since Joey spent five years in the service, it's been Tammy, Sean, and I, but this year we were blessed to have Joey and Andrea along with us. And just so happens, um, the package deal that uh, Tammy, Sean, and I got at the hotel included Thanksgiving dinner. But Joey and Andrea, because they didn't stay long enough, theirs didn't. So they had to pay separately for their dinner after dinner was over. And it's a, quite a Thanksgiving dinner at this kind of fancy restaurant, so I imagine it was somewhere between 30 and 50 bucks, probably per meal, probably something like that. It's an expensive meal per person, let's put it that way. Probably somewhere just shy of 50 bucks a pop. Joey noticed that the waitress had failed to charge them for two meals, only one. So he called the waitress over and did the right thing. And she added the extra meal and he paid. And I told him that I was really proud of him. And I was. Because a lot of people, even believers, would be tempted to not say anything. Look at that. That must be grace. God loves me. 50 bucks richer. And drinks on me. God loves us. That's got to be grace, right? 
Grace orientation promotes integrity. A person who is satisfied with God's grace will function in integrity. Yeah. Well, if I pay the bill and I don't, I don't have any extra money for drinks later, that must be what God wanted. So I'm going to pay the bill, and that's the way it is. That's a person who's satisfied with God's grace. You see, grace orientation actually promotes integrity. If you're satisfied with the life that God has given you, including monetary, everybody can relate to money, so let's stay with it, then you function with integrity. If you're not, you might say, you're bad, my good, drinks on me. But here's the funny thing, and integrity is doing the right thing even when no one's looking. As you can imagine, the group of us began recounting times when we didn't do the right thing. Because we've all done it, right? Come on. Oh, it's just our family, obviously. Thank God we go away because we're vile creatures. So we all started laughing. I mean, what are you going to do? It's, you know. And in retrospect, especially given the lessons from the pulpit as of late, as you can imagine, we were all a bit in stitches at points. That night, as we were playing a board game together, we kept recalling stories about each other, some which were a bit embellished, frankly, for the sake of humor. But we kept saying, oh, that's, that's totally grace. Total grace, right? Remember that? Oh, yeah, remember that happened? That was grace. <laughs> Man often likes to say this, but how often is it true? No, seriously. And I was thinking, now, here are some examples that aren't grace and do not warrant the exclamation, oh, that's grace. Now, we didn't talk about all these, so don't go, be, oh, my God, that family is wretched. This is not the, what we talked about. I kept maybe one of them or two of them on here. But his, oh, that's grace, not. Paying a check when the waiter makes an error in your favor. That's not grace. Stop reading ahead. Look at me. Paying a check when a waiter makes an error in your favor. How about signing your tax return when your accountant makes an error in your favor? That's not grace. Oh, look at that. My accountant saved me two grand this year. It's like this glaring error. Just sign it. Hurry up, honey. Just sign it. <laughs> you get to go to Aruba this year for an extra week. That's not grace. It's not. That's not great. God's not loving you that much. He's telling you to do illegal crap. <laughs> How about this one? This happens in this church, by the way. And I've received them and played them. So I'm just guilty. Receiving a Christian music CD that's been burned with music you didn't pay for. Oh, this is awesome. There's like 20 tracks on here. Woohoo! But it's Christian music. So God's good with it. Because I'm spreading the gospel. That's not grace. That is not grace. Anybody? Find some spare CDs out in the parking lot after. <laughs> How about this one? Loading pirated Christian software onto your computer. That's another one I love. For years, I used to see these like elastic band, <laughs> banded Christian software, like you know, like 
Accordance software, Bible software, logo. These things that actually cost money. Someone would like reproduce them or put the key on the outside and say, hey, just you know, like a thousand people loaded up on their computers. But since it was Christian, that's grace. Unbelievable. That's not grace. That's, that's piracy. That makes you a thief. <laughs> well, how about this one? Receiving a job promotion that takes you further away from your daily worship of the Lord. But look at it, God, God loves me so much, you're going to give me more money. Oh. No, that's not, that's not grace. That's not grace. Now, again, the disclaimer, obviously, is not all of these were fodder for a Thanksgiving fun. But you get the point. You get the point. What the Spirit's saying in closing is this. Remember God's grace. Not only should we appreciate and respond to God's grace always, we must also compare it honestly and with integrity to all of God's Word. And that's why some of those are funny. It really shouldn't be funny because it's more like nervous laughter. <laughs> We're supposed to compare. Just because, look, what have I been teaching from the pulpit? Just because it's accommodating and you, you deem it somehow good doesn't mean it's grace. Grace is not meant to accommodate you and your plans for drinks after. You're like, man, I really would like to go for drinks after, but you know, I'm going to be out of money. Oh, my God, the waitress made a mistake. Oh, yeah. That's grace. God loves us. Let's go. That's not grace. And there's a bazillion different ways we can apply that little formula to our lives, can't we? Relationships. Think about relationships. Oh, God. It's not grace. That's man trying to refactor the definition of grace to fit their desires. And as I've been teaching for a while now, grace accommodates God, not man. Amen? All right. We'll get back to grace and works on Sunday. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time, this opportunity to fellowship together, to learn your word, Father. Thank you for being honest with us always, even when it stings. Thank you for letting us, for lack of a better term, Father, laugh about it uh, in retrospect, even though it's not funny. Uh, thank you so much for revealing these things to us so that we might adjust in your good timing and that we might honestly and with integrity realize these things about ourselves, about the world we live in, and press on in the faith. What else can we do, Father? Increase our faith, we pray to you. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.